Good morning. Welcome to LifePoint. Great to be together today and to see you. And want to welcome all those joining us on our live stream as well on YouTube, uh, maybe later in the week. And uh, I hope you're doing well. I hope you had a great week. And I just want to start by thanking you uh, for once again for your unbelievable uh, generosity, the unbelievable response that you've given to our Souls for Soul campaign. And this was something Greg Deerdorf uh, was involved with. There's a ministry called Gospel Tide Ministry that uh, reaches people throughout the world with a message of hope about the Lord that helps a lot of people in need. And they uh, basically were trying to bring in shoes that they could distribute to people in need throughout the world. And the goal, uh, an early goal, was to that we at LightPoint would come up with 90 pairs of shoes. And we had a couple weeks to do it. And I just so excited to tell you that uh, actually that wasn't, that wasn't a big enough goal for you. Not even close. Uh, we raised, uh, brought in 295 pairs of shoes that are going to be used again for those. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just another example of the generosity uh, that we find here. I'm just so thankful for you, so proud of what we get to do to try to help other people uh, in our community and in our world. You are a difference maker, and, and that just brings uh, such joy uh, to be part of something uh, bigger than ourselves. And uh, today we're continuing our series, The Games People Play, and we're looking at the next game, which is the game of chess. Chess. So how many of you have played the game of chess? Okay. I noticed that it's far fewer than the game of sorry. Sorry, uh, sorry is a little bit easier game. Chess is a complicated game, and some people are like, I don't even want to deal with that, and I totally understand that. Although, when I was growing up, I did play chess. I played chess with my dad. I played chess with my uncle. I was actually, for a brief time, in the middle school chess club, and I don't know why, because I never brought a book home to study. I didn't study, didn't care about school, could not focus, but somehow I could focus when it came to chess. I still, to this day, do not understand myself. But anyway, that's the story, and chess is an amazing game. It involves a lot of strategy, forward thinking, uh, a lot of planning and implementing those plans. And uh, chess is uh, something that came around the 15th century, the, the modern game of chess. And it's something that has this goal to impose power on your opponent. The goal is to actually uh, corner the opposing king and put them in a situation where they're in checkmate, where they have no way of escape, And so the goal is to defeat your opponent, to defend your pieces and to break down their de defenses and ultimately to claim victory over the opposing forces that are uh, allied against you. And chess is a fantastic game, but some people actually take chess into real life. They play the game of chess with other people. They see other people as an opponent to be defeated, as someone whose defenses we need to break down. It's someone I have to impose myself on to get an advantage. This is something that can happen in our world today. And power ultimately becomes the goal. Power becomes the holy grail in this life. Power is how we uh, develop and kind of cultivate our own sense of importance, and so I need to acquire power and consolidate power and expand my power. 
And power is something we talk a lot about in our culture. For example, power plays. You know, somebody, yeah, they got a power play going. They're trying to scheme behind the scenes to get something going for themselves to get an advantage. So there's a power play or a power, lo- power lunch. I mean, have you ever been on a, a power lunch? This is where powerful people get together and they eat sandwiches while they talk about powerful things. So maybe, you, maybe you're a power person. You eat sandwiches and talk about powerful things. There are power ties Some people wear power ties, like big, bold colors, like big, bold colors that kind of represent the big, bold personality you carry, the big, bold agenda that you got going. And so maybe you've seen seen power ties. And and power has, there's positive elements to it, but it also has a very, very dark side. Because if our goal in this life is to obtain power over other people, if we define other people as opponents that we need to corner and overcome, then inevitably we're going to have dysfunction and brokenness in our lives and in our world. Uh, We see that in relationships. If we treat people as opponents, well, they're going to fight back and we're going to have these battles. And it's really, we see This happening in our culture where people attack each other, they smear each other, they gossip about each other, they undermine each other, they sabotage each other, they make sneaky moves behind the scenes to get an advantage. And there's these damaging political games that people play. And in the end, relationships suffer when power is the goal. Our world suffers as well when power is the goal. And we see that today in Ukraine, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit more in a few minutes. But today, I want to look at what the Bible says, what Scripture says about the nature of power, the legitimate and illegitimate use of that power, um, and how it affects us not just personally, there's a personal application, but on the world stage as well, and ultimately how God himself is playing chess, He's got some moves going on, and we need to see with clarity what's unfolding in front of us. And I want to begin by looking at what Paul says about power in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 13, because he has something to say about the macro level of power, the large enveloping level of power, and specifically what it should look like and how it applies to governments and then ultimately To us. Paul describes this uh, sense of power in Romans 13, 1 through 5. It says, Everyone must submit himself to governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. For those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror to those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For it is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath, to bring punishment to the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. There are several things here that Paul talks about 
as we try to kind of unpack the nature of power and the way it should function in a way often it does not. The first thing we see is that the government, government authority is uh, authority that is established by God. It's what God has put in place to bring order and structure to society. And this authority that God gives to governing powers is, is fascinating because in the first century, Paul's writing this in an era where the government that he was under was corrupt and ungodly and definitely abusive. They were oppressive. But nevertheless, Paul says that governing structures are important. Otherwise, without them, you have total chaos and anarchy. And as we read a little bit further, we unpack a little bit more about this governing authority, how it should function, and what is right about it when it gets it right, and what is wrong and leads to brokenness and dysfunction. How is this governing authority supposed to function? How are they supposed to use their power. Verse 3 says it is supposed to advance what is right. It is no terror to those who do right. No terror to those who do right. And it's a servant to you for your good. So that's the purpose of this power. We read a little bit further in verse 4. It says that it bears the sword. It bears the sword. In other words, it has this ability and this responsibility to take care of itself and to watch over the integrity of the nation it governs. Last week, we looked at uh, this idea of uh, interpersonal relationships and how uh, Paul talked about not seeking revenge against those who hurt us, uh, not picking, taking up the sword and, and fighting with someone in a one-on-one -on -one relationship. What we see in Paul... And what we see in the Sermon on the Mount in Jesus is there is a one-on-one -on -one relational ethic in play there where we're not to seek revenge, we're not to be violent, and we're not to uh, fight our, our enemy. But here we have a different, different sphere in place. This is not the relational sphere. This is the governmental sphere. And it is in this sphere that God has adorned, uh, a, a ordained human beings to take up the sword appropriately to maintain the integrity of their nation. They wield the sword for two purposes, to defend the nation against outside threats, and then also to deal with evildoers within. And there's two key concepts here that are important when we understand power, two words that help us understand the nature of this power. The first is the word kratos in the Greek, this is the word for naked, raw expressions of power. It's brutal. It's oppressive. It creates suffering because someone wants to impose themselves on another. It's kratos. Now, that can be modified and moderated some by people. So when we think of the word democracy, for example, that is, uh, that's a, a word that we know, and it contains two Greek words, demos, which is people, and kratos, which is power. So it's democracy means the rule of the people. So people moderate uh, the power of government in a democracy. In the first century, though, there weren't democracies uh, abundantly, you know, in play. They were basically autocrats and 
you know, Caesar and others who were exercising power over people, and that power was kratos, brutal, oppressive power. This is one key concept. But what's interesting in this passage is that Paul doesn't use that word to describe governmental power or human power at its highest level. He uses a different word. It recurs six times, so it's like he wants to make this point very clear. It's the word exousia, which means authority. And this word is very different because it's not brutal, naked, oppressive, coercive power to make you comply, to make you do something you shouldn't do or would not do or even goes against what God would want you to do. This is exousia authority. It's delegated power. It's power that God gives us to accomplish something good in this world. It's power that God gives governments to bring healthy structures to this world. It's power that God gives to governments in order that people in their, the nations they govern may prosper. And it's not only delegated authority, but it is accountable authority. In other words, God ultimately will hold into account any illegitimate use of power, and they may do massive damage, and people who use their power to hurt other people will do massive damage, and we see that, but they are accountable for that, and in the end, they will not prevail. What it means is that God holds all power accountable. He holds governments accountable. He holds nations accountable. He holds leaders accountable. He holds politicians accountable. You have some kind of power. You have some kind of influence in your sphere, whatever that might be. You also are accountable for the expression of power you have and how you utilize and exercise that power. Why is this important? Because political leaders, dictators, Governmental officials and powerful people too often think they are the chess grandmaster, but they are not. Too often, we grasp this power, we get into a position, and we think, man, we're all that, and we're proud of it, we're intoxicated by that, and we begin to use it, sometimes unwittingly, for our own purposes. This is something that happens in our world. We begin to play chess and define others as our opponents to be defeated. And we begin to see, I think, over time, the impact of all of this because it's, it plays out in so many different realms. The power plays in our world. It's the stare down at the bar. You know, you're at the bar, you're at the rest, somebody's staring you down because they want you to know, hey, they got power over you and they want to let you know that, hey, you better cower before them. It's the girl that gets out of the car and, and wants to fight somebody else because somebody cut them off. It's a road rage thing. I'm gonna, I'm gonna impose my power on you. You can't do that to me. It's the husband, it's the wife who, who hires the best divorce lawyer they could ever find because they're not just looking to get a fair shake on, on their estate. They don't want that. No, they want you to pay. They want you to bleed. They want you to suffer. All because... I want you to bleed, I want you to pay, I want you to suffer. It's the bully in the playground who's an eighth grader but grows up and he's still that bully, still bullying his kids, his family, his wife, his friends, he's gotta get what he wants, he's the one staring down others at the bar. There's this sense here that we want power over others but where does it lead? 
It leads to battles, it leads to fights, it leads to dysfunction, and in the end, it destroys us and others. We all suffer when we live playing chess, when we make life all about my power over someone else. And power is tempting. It feeds our egos. It makes us feel important. It covers over our insecurities. Maybe if I'm this way, they won't know that I'm really kind of struggling deep within my own soul. It creates broken relationships and, and horrible work environments. And, you know, you may know someone who, who lives this way, and maybe you work with them. It's like, wow, I got this person, and they're kind of the narcissist, and they want to own the space, and they want to dominate the, the, the area, the workplace. They want to dominate other people. They want to dominate me. And it's like everywhere they go, they're kind of crushing people all the time. And you're like, man, th this is a mess. And you're glad. You're glad that at the end of the day, you get to go home because you, you, don't, you, don't, you only work with them. You get to go home. But here's the thing, you should, be really also, you should also be very glad that that person at work who does all the power play stuff, be glad they don't have an army. Be glad they don't have a bunch of people that support their cause, that kind of crush others in their name. Because that's what happens in our world. And that's what we're seeing in Ukraine right now. One man with an immense craving for power, an immense craving for control, who has an army to do his bidding. And now innocent people are basically in, in a terrible, terrible situation. Russia wants to reconstitute. It looks like they're, they're wanting to reconstitute the former Soviet Union as, as much as they're able to. And if other people get in the way, well, then we just destroy them in the process. And now in Ukraine, there are 1.4 million refugees, people, husbands and wives and children, fleeing for their lives. We've got destroyed cities. We've got economies in disarray. We've got uh, places and towns reduced to rubble, soldiers on both sides needlessly dying. And ultimately, it's because of one man's quest for absolute power. It's a horrible, horrible thing. It's Kratos at its worst. But this naked power grab is a big-time miscalculation. It's devastating people, and it's going to lead to catastrophe for all involved. Because as they act out all this, and as they impose themselves on others, they're not mindful of something really important, that the authority they have is delegated authority, and that they are accountable, and they're oblivious to the accountability piece, that God himself will judge all human power and in fact, it, there will not be a good end to those who misuse it. And this means that no human being is a chess grandmaster, not one. And when humans grasp for power without recognizing and acknowledging the one who gave it, they're heading for a very bad end for themselves, for their role, for those under them, for those they impact and it's a scary to th thing to think that people can become so intoxicated by power. It can happen to us individually. We get into a position in our own lives where like, wow, we have power. We have some authority, and, and that can be misused. It's the domineering doctor who's like, man, I went to school, I'm smart, and, and they just take over, and they treat other people as just, you're the small people, you're little, and I can 
do what I want. It's the woman in the, fir- in the law firm who, who mistreats people and uses power to hurt others. It's, it's the pastor or the priest or it's the, it's the administrator at the office. It's the leader or business owner who doesn't care at all about others, in fact, uses their power for themselves, for self-advancement. But if we keep pursuing kratos and not exousia, we are heading for big-time danger. We make this mistake of thinking that this power is given to us to use at our own discretion and for our own self-advancement, but we misunderstand the nature of what God has given us. And when we no longer see God as the source of that authority, the source of our power, we're actually heading for a very bad conclusion. And if you doubt, if you doubt that God takes the use of your power, my power, and government power, and the leaders of our world and their power, if you doubt that God takes the use of that power seriously, just ask a man named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was at one time the most powerful man in the world. He led the world's superpower, Babylon. This man was unbelievably smart and unbelievably brutal. He was a guy who built immense, immense structures, and he took Babylon and made it a world-class city. He was a guy who uh, created what we know today as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, maybe You've heard of them. But he was also a fierce and brutal leader. He conquered everyone else. He conquered uh, Egypt at the time, a very powerful nation, conquered Egypt and Pharaoh. He also conquered Israel and took Jerusalem and all its people into exile. No one could stop him. And this man ultimately was very arrogant. He was very proud He thought of himself as the most important person in the world, and no one would contest it. His word was his word. And if you opposed him, you were certainly, certainly doomed. But the book of Daniel contains a lot of information about Nebuchadnezzar. Read it sometime. But in the first chapters, there are three stories of confrontation. Confrontation between God and arrogant human power. And it's interesting because The first confrontation involves God and Nebuchadnezzar in a very interesting way because Nebuchadnezzar, one day, with all his power and all his might and all his pomp, one day uh, he went to bed and he had this super disturbing dream. He had this really bad dream. Now, I don't know, have you ever had a dream, maybe a good one, Maybe a good dream or maybe a not so good dream and you wake up like three in the morning and you're like, I need to remember this. Like I, got, I have to remember this and it's like, if it's a good one, it's like, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll remember it or maybe it's bad. It's like, I gotta tell somebody this really bad dream that I had. It's like, I'm gonna remember this. And so you go back to sleep and you wake up the next morning, what happens? You forgot it. You forgot it. Like I should have gotten up and written it down, but we don't do that. Who's going to get up? Like, what are you doing? I'm writing my dream down. It's like, we, we don't really do that. What's fascinating about this is that Nebuchadnezzar has a really bad dream, and he remembers every detail about it, every single detail. And he's so disturbed by it that he comes to his astrologers and his magicians and his wise men, and he says, you guys need to tell me, you know, 
what this dream was about. Could you interpret it for me? And the astrologers all said, listen, we'll do that, but, but first you need to tell us what the dream was. And the king said, listen, dude. I don't think he said dude, but he said, listen, uh, seriously, you could tell me anything. Once I tell you the dream, you could make anything up in the world and say that's the interpretation. So here's the deal. I want you to tell me what I dreamed first, and then you will have the credibility to interpret it. Well, the astrologers hear that, and they're freaking out. They're like, this is the worst day of our lives. And they're like, listen, that's impossible. No one could possibly tell you, king, what you dream. Tell us what the dream was, and we'll interpret it. And, and they're having, like, fits, because they're scared to death. So they say to the king, no one can do this. And kings don't like that. If you tell them something they don't want to hear, they get annoyed, and an annoyed king like, like Nebuchadnezzar basically said, I'm going to kill you, all of you, because you are not interpreting this dream. You can't tell me anything about it. You're dead. You're dead. And so the astrologers, they're like, oh, man, we're dead. We're dead. They're going to line us up. They're going to kill us. And it was, they were frightened beyond, beyond, beyond anything imaginable. And here the death gods start going out and they're looking for Daniel. He's a young Jewish man who had come from Jerusalem in exile and he was being trained to be a wise man. And he, a death squad came to kill him because he's among this group of people that the king's angry at. And Daniel says, listen, this is not a really good thing here. Can, can I talk to the king about this because uh, I might be able to interpret this. Well, as soon as that came out, you can imagine all the astrologers going, Daniel, please, I'm begging you. You got to get this. You got to. We're counting on you, Daniel. We're counting on you because a lot was on the line here. And Daniel says, I can't interpret it, but I know that God can. And let me see if he'll let me know, inform me about this mystery. And sure enough, that's what's happened. He goes to the king and he says that God gave him insight, miraculous insight into both the dream and the interpretation. And we read about the dream in Daniel 2. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, you can imagine this moment as, as Daniel gives a playback on the dream. You can imagine all the astrologers going, man, man, that was, a, that was a close one. They're like, Daniel, Daniel. They're like, man, you just saved our lives. And it was an immense a moment of immense joy for all these wise men throughout the kingdom. But you can imagine Nebuchadnezzar too with his jaw just dropping like, seriously? 
You knew my dream? That's nuts. But here's the deal. What does it mean? And here was his opportunity. The savvy king was ready for the interpretation, but it was going to be a seriously mixed bag for him. We read the interpretation in chapter 2, verse 36. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to you, to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will rise inferior to yours. Next, the third kingdom, kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be, will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. And so this is a mixed bag for the king. It's an affirmation of his power and authority. Yes, king, you're the, you're the king of kings here. You're the head of gold. But then it's the other part that was really painful. But you are going to submit, king, to a far greater power. You are going to find yourself humbled. And in the end, only one king will prevail. And here we see a direct confrontation between Nebuchadnezzar, his power, and ultimately God's power. And Daniel has to be a little nervous about the whole thing because Nebuchadnezzar is the go-to guy. He's the alpha dog. You know, we think in our culture, and we think back to Iraq and the, uh, the uh, campaign of shock and awe and how nations and militaries use shock and awe. Nebuchadnezzar is kind of the originator of shock and awe. It took the form of his fiery furnace. He used it a lot because he liked to burn people. And in fact, he took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three of Daniel's friends, threw them in the furnace, heated it seven times hotter because, man, shock and awe for the whole nation. I want you to know who the big dog is. It's me. And now Daniel has to have the courage to tell the king, actually, you're not the big dog. And you can think, for, imagine for a minute, Daniel, like, uh, why am I the guy that has to tell the king what he doesn't really want to hear? Could somebody else do that? I mean, where's Shadrach? Shadrach, could you, where's Abednego? Come, so, why me? Why am I the guy? But Daniel had the courage to speak up. You can imagine him holding his breath and steadying himself as he awaited this brutal king's reply. And we read his reply in verse 46. Hearing all this, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you were able to reveal this mystery. 
It's unbelievable that in this moment, the king chooses, of all things, humility. Humility to say that in the face of this unbelievable revelation, this unbelievable power to reveal this mystery that no one else could reveal, that he steps back and says, no, no, you're the, your God is the God of gods. Your, your, your king is the king. And he humbles himself. We see soon, though, that that humility is short-lived, and God confronts him more. The king comes along and sets up a big, a big idol and says, I want you to worship this idol, and, and God had to confront him about that. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar got so full of himself that God confronted him again and said, you know what? I'm going to push you out of the palace, and you're going to be temporarily insane for a little while until you come to terms with who the true God really is. He continued to confront this arrogant power. And I think what we see here is that that's exactly God's plan. Nothing has changed. In the end, God confronts all arrogant human power because that power will not endure. And this brings us full circle back to Romans 13. And I want us to see that in this chapter where he begins describing legitimate and illegitimate power, in this chapter where he talks about how some will use it properly and some will abuse it, some will get it right and some won't, that this is the world that all of us live in. This is the world we can expect we can expect some people using kratos power to oppress and hurt others. There will be some others who get it right and see it as exousia and, do, and use their power for the good of others. And we can expect governments to follow suit. Some will be good and some will be purely evil. But Paul, in the very same chapter as he's talking about the nature of power, has something to say to us as Christ followers about how we respond in the context of a world where power can be abused. And it's interesting because he wants us to be prepared. He doesn't want us to be surprised when things go awry. He wants us to make a transition in our minds from a world that we might expect to be perfect, because that's our hope, to the reality of a world that never will be. And he talks in the very same chapter in verse 11 about our response to a world that can be very chaotic, broken, dysfunctional, and evil. It says, the hour has come for you to wake from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put, let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. In light of a world that's going to have a lot of ups and downs, in light of a world where power will be used properly and legitimately and improperly and illegitimately, we need as Christ followers to not be surprised by the darkness, but to know that the darkness is almost over. The dawn is about to emerge. And in light of that, we need to make a transition 
from a slumbering state where we think it's just gonna be the same way as it's always been and it's gonna be good and the world's gonna get better. We know the pandemic threw a wrench in that. We're like, that could never happen. That's a Hollywood thing. But no, it wasn't. It was our experience. Our world can turn that quickly. And we need to be ready to move out of this slumber where we think it's always gonna be the same to a sobering sense of clarity as to what we need to do and how we should live. And this really struck me this past week when my kids were visiting me. We had all our kids here last weekend, which is very rare. And I was talking uh, with them, and we were talking about Ukraine, just like you are as well. And, and um, if you think about it, what's happening in Ukraine required a lot of people to make a switch in their minds from one state of thinking to another state of thinking because at one point, the Ukrainians were just living their lives. They were just living their lives. They, they had their plans. They had the direction. They were getting married. They were looking for groceries. They were, you know, thinking about their future. And then suddenly, just like that, they're not, just, they're not planning their lives. They're trying to survive. They're fighting for their lives. And one story in particular really hit me. It was about a guy, a Ukrainian, that I think was about 27 years old, a young Ukrainian engineer. And he was assigned the task of blowing up a bridge to block a column of Russian tanks that were approaching uh, his area. And his job was to, to blow this bridge up to, to save his fellow friends and soldiers and to stop the advancement of this very dangerous, deadly column of, of military equipment. But as the time arrived and he got to the bridge, he realized that he couldn't blow it up in time unless he also blew himself up. And that's what he did. He killed himself to save others. He sacrificed his own life for the good of his nation. And I think about that, and it just boggles the mind of, to think that this guy probably just a few weeks earlier probably never even dawned on him or crossed his mind that he would have to make such a major decision. Violence that he experienced and saw was like this switch in his mind that went from just planning his life to giving his life for something bigger than himself. It made me think, how would I respond? How would my two boys respond? Two big kids, strong guys, men, they're men. <laughs> How would we respond if something like that happened here? Say that a, a column of enemy tanks wound up on the other side of the Susquehanna. Say the enemy took over City Island or Three Mile Island. And what if bombs started blowing up in our neighborhoods? What if we found people we loved and knew were injured or died? What if a 27-year-old friend of ours gave his life to stop a column of enemy tanks from crossing the Susquehanna? What would happen then? It's like a, likely a, a switch would go off in our minds and say, you know what, I was planning my, my future. I was planning, you know, where I would go shopping, um, what I wanted on Amazon, and, and, you know, what I wanted to do down the road and how much I have in my 401k. I was thinking about all those things, but I'm not thinking about those anymore because now my, life isn't that way. Life has completely changed, and now I want to move out of self-protection mode out of planning a prosperous future because I have something else that I need to do. And so maybe for some people it would mean grabbing a rifle 
with a bunch of people and just starting to walk down to Harrisburg uh, to fight. Maybe for other people, it's starting a neighborhood militia just to defend neighborhoods and friends and family that live nearby you. Maybe for others of you, you're not going to shoot, you're not going to fight, but you're going to grab a medic kit. You're going to run out there courageously as anybody else, and you're going to put yourself in the line of fire so that you can save someone. I don't know how we would all react. I don't know how we would respond. But there would be this moment where a switch would go off in our minds from one state of consciousness, protection and prosperity, to I've got a mission, I've got something else that I need to do. This is exactly what God wants to do in your mind and in our lives today, to move from one state of consciousness that says this is just going to be okay and we just kind of live our lives and there can't be a pandemic, there can't be chaos like this, to another where we are alert and we muster the courage to stand. I think this is where we live differently. And we let God flip the switch. Let God flip the switch in your minds so you use your power, the power you have right now to live courageously for him. You see, that's why you're here. That's why God has called you into a relationship with him. Not to just live and, and kind of go through the motions and cut, put life on cruise control. It's so tempting to do that and live that way, but there's gotta be this moment where we realize this is not our home. We don't get to stay here. And a switch goes off and says, I'm gonna live passionately for bigger things. I wanna live passionately and fully committed to his work in this world. And it really comes down to this, to shift are thinking that we no longer live. We don't live for temporary things. We don't live just to acquire power for ourselves. We don't live to, to kind of impose on other people. We don't live for the deeds of darkness. We don't live in self-preservation mode. We don't live for a day that is not gonna last very long. The night is just fleeting. No, we live for something about to emerge, a dawn yet to come. So... Be ready, be ready to live courageously for your faith. Live your faith. Don't be intimidated by other people. Don't put it, you know, make it a temporary thing, a part-time thing. I'm worried that somebody might see that I have faith. No, let your faith leak out. Live with that hope bubbling up out of you. Don't be so intimidated by this broken world, the dysfunctional world. We have hope to offer and share your faith. Don't worry all the time. I don't know, somebody might look at me different or they might not like me, might not fit in it as much. Maybe God has put you in your relationships so you can sow a, a seed of hope and faith and life and newness and forgiveness that they would never ever find without you. So live boldly, courageously, wholeheartedly, passionately for him while we have time, because the night is fading, but the day, the dawn, is quickly emerging. Because ultimately, history is going to shift. One day, very soon, history's one and only chess grandmaster is going to show up. And he's going to say, checkmate to sin. He's going to say, checkmate to death. He's going to say, checkmate 
to the devil and his devices and Satan and his strategies. He's going to say checkmate to every world government that defies him. He's going to say checkmate to every leader and politician that fails to acknowledge him. He'll say checkmate to a world that has defined itself in opposition to him. And so we need to be ready to live boldly in this moment, to embrace him, because even now, Jesus, he's approaching that chessboard. He's studying the pieces. He's making his last moves. Arrogant power has no future. Checkmate awaits. And you and I, we can be ready for this awesome day of victory. Let's pray.